بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Does anyone know what number lesson this is? Six or seven? Okay. So we are on page 45. And we are heading towards the end of this section, which ends on page 60. So from page 61, we have a new chapter where we said that this whole section from 30-ish until now is pretty much a summary of a lot of the detailed content that is described in 60 onwards. Um, so we'll, we'll probably not finish this section today, but we'll finish it in the next section so we get to number six, page 60 in the class after next class, inshallah. Uh, in the previous session, yeah? Page 45, yes. In the previous class, we were reflecting on the final paragraph on page 44, where the Shaykh, Hafizullah, says, From among the many miracles is his tremendous character. May peace, honor, and blessings be upon him. Some of the scholars have said that whoever looks into his character, excellences and unique attributes will know and acknowledge that it is a lordly miracle which no one can possess without divine help and a lordly seduction. They will realize that such characteristics have not been present in a single person before the Prophet So we were speaking about character and the next section going on for quite a number of pages is all about character. And what I wanted to do today, before we read from page 45 about the character, is to talk a little bit more about the understanding we have about akhlaq. Akhlaq. Akhlaq is character, and we are aware as Muslims of the importance of good character. But what exactly is good character? Is good character just being nice to people in public? Is it holding doors open for people? Is it just saying please and thank you? The answer is no. Those are aspects of good character, but good character goes much deeper. Character itself goes deeper. And so I wanted us to look at the way the scholars of Islam have historically presented our understanding of akhlaq, where it comes from and what it is. And as a side point, the, the scholars of Islam had no hesitancy in borrowing from and adapting the best thoughts of other communities. They would take what was expressed in previous communities and they would distill it, refine it, and remove anything from it that is not 
according to the vision of Tawheed. And I say that because in the Islamic paradigm, the way scholars have discussed akhlaq is taken almost verbatim from Aristotle. And there's no problem in that because the Muslim scholars took the previous work done on ethical theory and philosophy, took it out or took out of it any non-Islamic elements and found within it what is supported by the text of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And they used that as a way of structuring the conversation, as a way of presenting a systematized uh, discussion on character. So, character, what's the word for character in Arabic? There's two words. Akhlaq and khuluq. So these two words, they come from the same root. So kha, lam, qaf. When you look at that root, you find khalq, which is your form, your outer form. And khuluq is the inner form. Right? They both come from the same root word. So we have a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where he taught us to say when looking in the mirror has anyone memorized this dua? Allahumma kama hassanta khalqi just as you have beautified my outer form fahassin khuluqi so to beautify my inward form so this is a reminder that when we look in the mirror this is a good dua because it's reminding us that if we're pleased with what we see in the mirror, we're pleased with the outer form. And we ask Allah Ta'ala, so we acknowledge that when we say it. Kama hasanta khalqi, you're acknowledging that Allah beautified your outer form. And then you make the dua, just as you have adorned my outer form, also adorn my inner form. So you're reminding yourself that what is truly important is the inner and the outer a person may be hasan in their outer form, but they are uh, not so hasan in their inner form, right? But the word akhlaq comes from this root word, khalq and khuluq, so outer and inner. And according to the scholars, Imam al-Ghazali, chiefly among them, he talks about this. He says that akhlaq or character refers to the internal state of the soul. The internal state of the soul that makes good actions emerge spontaneously and without forethought. Right? So if you, for example, want to develop your character and you consciously think of the things you can do, what you can do proactively to develop your character, you may make sure to say please and thank you. You may make sure to uh, calm yourself and not lose your temper. You may try to make sure that you're a good listener. But that's all conscious action. You're doing it with some forethought. I need to do this. That is the way that you develop 
character, but that's not character itself. Why? Because character, according to this definition, is the internal state of the soul that makes good actions emerge spontaneously without forethought. You don't have to think about them, right? So there's a process of taking, of adopting good character through good actions until they become a part of your nature. You, through a kind of spiritual alchemy, through that proactive work, they eventually become a part of your nature. And when they become a part of your nature, they become your character. Before they become a part of your nature, they're not yet your character, but you're working to integrate them into your character. Does that make sense? Yes? It's a complicated question. Because there, we have in the tafsir, uh, I believe it's from Sa'id bin Jubair, uh, who mentions in the tafsir of the verse about the day of the covenant, when Allah Ta'ala addressed the spirits, أَلَسْتُ بِرَبِّكُمْ قَالُوا بَلَا شَهِدْنَا They all bore witness. Some, uh, according to Sa'id bin Jubair and some other authorities, some people, they said it, and they weren't being truthful. That's one view, right? That's one view. They were spirits. They knew it's right and wrong, you know? But it opens the door to a really deeper conversation about the pre-eternal uh, decree as it applies to people and what they receive. But they have to have like intellect. They have intellect, yes. They have intellect and they recognize, right? Uh, I think maybe the question is if people acknowledge that on the day of Alastu Birabbikum, does it mean that they were all at a similar stage of fitrah and purification, being free of the things that would pollute them. Right? There's no taklif. There's no moral responsibility in that realm. They're not, that's in dunya. So there's no moral responsibility in that realm. There is moral responsibility in this realm. And then in Jannah, there's no taklif because there's no commands and prohibitions because everything is just open. So people have their certain natures. And there's a very complex discussion among Islam's moral philosophers about whether you can even change your character. Is it all nature? Or is it all nurture? Or is it a mixture between nature and nurture? And I mean, the ultimate answer is that there are aspects about us that are immutable, just your personality, right? Your personality is not your character though, right? There's a, there's a big difference. Uh, up until maybe 150, 200 years ago, even in the West, they didn't talk about personality. It was always about character. When you look at the books that were written on moral philosophy, uh, self-development, you know, self-help, the books on self-help that were written 150 years ago, 200 years ago, were about character. They weren't about personality. But as you get further and further into modernity and the, the, in, in the industrialized age, 
you find more and more books uh, written about developing your personality. So you have a book like, um, what's his name? Is it Andrew Carnegie? Uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Yeah. That book, it's a good book for a person who is introverted and they want to know how to do things, you know, force certain behaviors so they become more likable, so they open up new doors of opportunity for them in work and life. But that whole book is basically about faking your character to give yourself a personality you don't really have until it becomes something you get used to and it makes things easier in life, it opens doors and you win friends and you influence people, right? But before that, it wasn't a talk about personality, it was a talk about character. Uh, Anyhow, so because of this, the scholars say that what you observe from the actions of people, good or bad, what you observe from their actions are the fruits of the character that is inside. The fruits. So think of character as a tree with roots. What you see from people in their statements and actions, good or bad, are the fruits of the character inside of them. That's it. Now the word character in English comes from a Greek word, which sounds almost the same. They just spell it with a K and an H, like a kha, character. And the, the Greek word for character means the thing that is engraved on something. So think of a stone and you engrave on the stone that is the Greek word for character. So it is something that's engraved in you. It's not, ju- it's not a mean person being nice for one day out of the week. It's not an introverted person being super outgoing during one party that they force themselves to do. Right? It is something ingrained. It is built into who they are. Or it is something they build over effort in mujahada until it becomes engraved in them and becomes a part of who they are. Why do they talk like this? Because Imam al-Ghazali, for instance, says, if a person is uh, stingy, if they're a bakhil, right? They're very stingy, they're a penny pincher, yet one day they donate a large sum of money, we still don't call that person kareem. The action is an action of karam, for sure. And for that, with a good intention, they receive a reward, inshallah. But by the stingy person donating money, they don't become kareem because it's something they had to think about. It didn't come naturally. It's something they forced themselves to do. The kareem person, on the other hand, is kareem by their character, by their nature, so that when they give, it's just something natural they do. And their kareem by their character, even if they don't have any money, right? They could be broke, but they're still called karim because it's their nature. Whether they have money or they don't have money, their nature is karam, and so they are karim as a part of their character. And the wealthy person who gives once or twice, but who's otherwise stingy, won't be called karim just because of giving until they give to such an extent that stinginess is removed, 
and karam becomes a part of their nature where they have really they've engraved that into their nature where it becomes a part of their character so going back to that discussion are we born with our character and can our character change there are some people who said no uh, you are born with the character you have and you really can't change it. But the scholars of Islam said, while it's true that people have inborn natures, it's not true to say that you can't change your character. Because if you could not change your character, there would be no benefit in Allah encouraging us to adopt good qualities of character. There would be no benefit in sending prophets and messengers to humanity telling them, their people to take on good character. If you can't change yourself, then why would Allah send people to tell you to change yourself? That's what they say. So it is changeable, but it's with effort. And at first it has to be done with You know, you have to force yourself to do it. It's not really there yet, but you do it and do it and do it until it becomes your nature over time. Right? But that still doesn't tell us what constitutes good character. Uh, good character, we can read hundreds of hadith, we can read hundreds of ayat of the Qur'an which describe aspects of good character. And if we looked at those hundreds of qualities of good character, could we boil them down to core qualities? Yes, we can. And this is helpful because when you have a better understanding of where character comes from, you understand all of the hundred aspects of good character and from whence they originate. And this is mentioned by Imam Ghazali, uh, Mishkawi and others, uh, Imam Abu Nu'im al-Asfahani, several others. And this is here on the board. Uh, we have the understanding that human beings have three strengths or faculties. Faculty, so we have the faculties, you have many faculties as human beings. A faculty here means a quwa, right? Or an urdu, quwat, right? It's the same word, faculty. It is that faculty of the human being. You have the quwa to sama, you have the faculty of hearing, you have the faculty of sight, you have the faculty of taste. You have the faculty of the sensory, touch, right? So these are the hawasul khams, the five senses, right? Those are quwat. But internally, the scholars say there are three faculties. The first one, I don't know if, what does it say on the first? Quwwatul shahwaniyah. Al-quwwatul shahwaniyah. If we translate it into English, it means the appetitive faculty. So appetite, right? Shahwa, you know, shahwa is referring to the physical desires. So when they talk about quwa shahwaniya, primarily they refer to the appetite uh, of the stomach and the private parts. That's the quwa shahwaniya, right? So this faculty is inbuilt within human beings. And it is an instinct Allah gives human beings by which they search for pleasure and averting harms or discomforts, right? That's clear enough. 
right? There's the shahwa faculty. The second faculty is al-quwwatul ghadabiyya. And that's from the word ghadab. What is ghadab? Anger, right? In English, they call this the irascible faculty. Irascible is just a fancier word for ghadab. So the irascible faculty, or the, fa- the faculty of anger. And the scholars say that the faculty of anger is what compels your limbs to move to avert harm from yourself or from others. Whether that harm is real or whether that harm is imagined, right? So what are these beetles called that are swarming across Western Pennsylvania right now? Right. Lantern flies. Chinese lantern flies. If one of them lands on you and you didn't see them coming, but it lands on you, it is your instinct to is it your instinct to A look at it and talk to it? Or B your instinct is immediately to and then think that there's others and now freak out that they're everywhere. That's your instinct. If you're in your backyard and you're mowing the lawn and you see a snake, the human instinct is to jump backwards and to kill it or run away, whatever. So if you kill it or if you smack the beetle, that is a part of your quwa ghadabiya. It's your internal quality, that instinct by which you repel harm from yourself or from others. Right? Someone, la Allah, someone attacks your child. The instinct is to fight them. Right? That's because of the inbuilt faculty of the anger. So it's a blessing. Without the first one, al quwwatul shahwaniyya there would be no reproduction, there would be no humanity, no civilization, nothing. Because there would be no reproduction. There would be no eating or drinking. If there was no then we would not have the instinct to remove harm from ourselves or from others. So it's a blessing. The third faculty, which really should be at the top of this list, is And this is the contemplative faculty. The faculty of contemplation, of reflection, of thinking, of planning, uh, all of these things. So it is the quwa of the aql, right? So the first one, the shahwaniya, is the uh, the stomach and the private parts. The quwa ghadabiya, the irascible faculty, is the faculty of anger, and the third one is the faculty of the mind, the aql. So these three are given to us by Allah Taala, and they serve us. But only if we have them in balance. If we don't have them in balance, then we will go into either excess or neglect. When these three are perfectly balanced, the appetitive faculty, the irascible faculty, and the contemplative faculty, they will give rise to what the scholars call 
the cardinal virtues, ummahatul fadail, the cardinal virtues. And, and that's a term that people are familiar with in the West because it's a part of this shared tradition. Because the Islamic notion of character, as we're outlining it, outlining it is shared with other civilizations, right? So the four cardinal virtues we have here on the board are the four virtues that arise when these three faculties are used for their proper purposes. So these are temperance, wisdom, justice, and courage. Okay? So when these four are held in balance, or three out of the four, then you have good character. And when you look at all of the different aspects of good character within the Qur'an and the Hadith, each quality of good character refers to one of these cardinal virtues when it is actualized, right? So for example, I'll give you an easy one. For a person to be, uh, to have the quality of truthfulness in speaking truth to power, that is a, a good character quality. Which of these four cardinal virtues does it go back to? Courage. Courage, Courage right? Uh, when a person has a large meal and they hold themselves back from stuffing themselves. Temperance. Temperance, right? When a person, yeah, we'll explain what each of those mean. Yeah, um, when a person, uh, someone comes to that person and tries to seduce them, and they say, Astaghfirullah, inni akhafullah, and they stay away. They avoid that haram. What cardinal virtue does, does that refer to? It could be ifa if the person if the person making the moves has some power. But you, this this here would be ifa, yeah, temperance. Right. So let's explain these four, because in these four you see all the character we're going to be reading about in this section. Now the first of them is temperance, ifa, ifa. Okay, I'll give you an easy one. People are broadly divided into three types. Introverts, extroverts, and in between them, ambiverts. Most people hear of the, the latter two, right? Introverts, people who are very quiet, they don't talk a lot, they... <laughs> Uh, they don't like large crowds. They have all these qualities of introversion. They tend to have a very rich internal life, meaning they, do, they think deeply, and they tend to think deeper than the extroverts. Not that the, inter, the extroverts aren't intelligent or don't think deeply, it's just 
you know, relatively. Uh, extroverts are more outgoing. They love gatherings. When they go to a gathering, they get energized. When an introvert goes to a gathering, it drains their battery and they have to go home and recuperate. So that is your personality. You, you're an introvert, you can make yourself more introverted if you force it, but it's always going to be forced because your personality, your, the, the, the makeup, the way Allah made you is as an introvert. Same thing if you're an extrovert. Now, we have extroverts with good character and we have introverts with good character. We have introverts with bad character and extroverts with bad character. So your character is your basic nature, but your character is talking about the internal qualities whose fruits come out in the way, the, the way you speak to people and how you are with people, right? So there's a difference. So these four cardinal virtues are, number one, temperance. Uh, temperance is an old English word, and we have the history of the temperance movement in America during the 1920s, even before that, and the temperance movement in the UK, even before that. And the temperance movement was a movement uh, led mostly by women to prevent people or discourage people from drinking alcohol. It was a movement to curtail the consumption of alcohol because of all of the negative impacts it was having on society. Eventually that led to the prohibition, which was short-lived. But the temperance movement uses that word temperance as in staying away from alcohol, right? So temperance is this quality of sabr, of patience, of hilm, of forbearance. It's the quality of haya, of modesty. It is the quality of keeping yourself within certain limits and not going to excess in what you consume. That's all temperance. The second, so if you, okay, look at temperance by, before we move on. Um, which of the three faculties does temperance apply to? Primarily shahwaniya, yeah, right. It, it can also apply to ghadabiyya, because, you know, the way you react to people, right? Wisdom, that's the next one. Now, wisdom is putting things in their proper place. Wisdom is putting things in their proper places. Right? And wisdom gives rise to qualities like thoughtfulness, deliberation, uh, discerning between what is good, what is better, and what is best, and discerning between what is bad, what is worse, and what is worst. So, tamyiz. So, which faculty does that refer to? Tafakkur, right? It is the quality of the aql in proper balance, right? Justice, 
justice is a quality that gives rise to things like nobility, honor, integrity, fulfilling trust, uh, things like that, saying what is true. Which, quality, which of the three faculties does this one refer to? Yeah. Did I say, uh, which one did I say? Did I say uh, justice? I meant to say uh, bravery or courage. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, courage. Yeah, you have this nobility of character, this dignity, um, this ability to withhold your anger and execute it in the proper situation, in the proper measure. Yeah, that's all. Courage goes back to al-quwa al-ghadabiyya, to the, the irascible faculty, the ghadabiyya. Obviously, I mean, the, the tafakkur is involved in all of these because you have to think about what you do, no matter what you do. Yeah. But primarily, that quality, that cardinal virtue of courage is rooted in al-quwa al-ghadabiyya, the, the irascible faculty. Right. Okay. Um, justice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I read the wrong part of my notes. Justice is basically putting all of this into proper balance. That's it. That's why you'll see that uh, out of these four, only three of them can go to excess or negligence. Justice cannot go into negligence or excess. You can't be... Oh, you're too just. You're too fair. Or, right, you're not, you know, if you say uh, here justice, don't, don't think of justice here as giving a judgment, like a, like, a, like a judge in a court. We're not talking about that. We're talking about adil as in balance. So balance can't be imbalance, right? It, just, it is or it isn't, right? But for these other three, it is possible that these cardinal but virtues. Yeah, when the. Don't give proper place to. And 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 that that lack of giving things their proper place, mm -hmm. is a lack of justice, because of lacking somewhere in the other three. So, they make this point because what they say is. Of these four cardinal virtues, three of them, temperance, courage, and wisdom, can go to excess or they can be neglected. When they go to excess, they give rise to negative qualities of character. When they go to neglect, they also give rise to other negative qualities of character. So look at temperance. Uh, temperance, ifa. Can it go to excess? Yes. But what would that look like? If the person has an excess of ifa, then basically they become too shy to speak out when their rights are being trampled on. Or they cannot command the good and forbid the evil. Right? 
Or if you take it to the shahwani aspect, they they have no they have no desire. They have no desire. So they're basically uh, what's the word in English? They're languid and dormant. They become doormats, right? They have no desire. There's no zest in life, right? So this is going to excess. If the shahwa is imbalanced, right? Their ifa is imbalanced, then basically they become apathetic. It's probably the best word. They become apathetic and listless. But if they have if the shahaba is going into the other extreme, right, so there's neglect and there's excess. If it's excess, then what do they do? They become greedy. They become stingy. They become immoral. They become immodest because they don't have enough ifa. Because they're lacking in ifa, they become immoral. They become degenerate. They become immodest. They lack haya. You see the balance here? If you have too little of the quwa shahwaniya, your ifa is going to suffer and you're going to be apathetic and have no desire. If you have too much quwa shahwaniya that's not balanced, you, you have immorality, you have a lack of haya, immodesty. Right? If you look at this quwa ghadabiyya, the irascible faculty, right? when it's in balance, you have courage. But when it's going into excess with the anger, what do you have? You have uh, recklessness. Right? You, should be, you should use your anger to serve you for a good end in the right measure. If you have too much of that, you become reckless. right? Or you uh, have a bad temper. Or you abuse people. Right? It becomes a, a tool for abusing other people, hurting other people unjustly, right? Like a tyrant, right? Right. A tyrant is one who has the irascible faculty going into excess, right? Uh, if the person doesn't have enough of the quwa ghadabiya, then what happens to them? They have no courage. They become a coward, right? So that's when it's going on the other side, right? For hikmah, it's the same thing, right? Quwatu tafakkur, right? The hikmah, the aql. If a person has, it's not that we say they have too much aql, but it's not, it's, it's going to an excess, to bad ends. They become cunning and conniving and scheming. They use the aql for plotting and planning to harm other people for their own selfish ends, right? It's not in balance. If they don't have enough, then they become a dull person, they're dreary, and they hardly function in life, right? Now for adal, justice, there's no imbalance. It is or it's not, right? So a person who is brave is a person who has a fully developed and they're neither reckless nor are they cowardly. They're in balance. If they have al-quwwata in balance, they have ifa, so they have their desires, 
but those desires are acted upon in halal ways. They're neither immoral with excess, nor are they languid and listless and apathetic without desires. If the person has a fully developed quwa at-tafakkur, the contemplative faculty, the aql, then they use the aql for good. They're neither in excess where they use it for evil and plotting and conniving and scheming, nor are they so lacking in aql that they're dull and dreary and stupid, dumb, right? They're just a dull person. So this is the this is kind of the bird's eye view, the, the basic structure of how we understand good character. So this is useful because when you read about the character in the Qur'an, the good qualities of character mentioned in the Qur'an, or the good character mentioned in the Hadith, you have hundreds of things. But you can boil all of them down to these four cardinal virtues. There are aspects of these four cardinal virtues, right? And this is also helpful for a person discovering their own imbalances. Where is it coming from? You know, why am I this way? Why am I that way? Right? Because some people will have a, a, a strange combination of excess here and a lack there. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he says, I've only been sent to complete good character. He has been sent to model how we bring our character into that perfect balance. And he therefore reflects that perfect balance in every single way. This is why he is the model of character. Right? So this is a useful guide and it'll help us understand more from the narrations we're going to read in this book where he talks about the character. Uh, before we read in the book on page 45, are there any questions about this? I, I try to simplify and shorten that discussion, but this is found in detail. If you want to read about this in detail, I would recommend a few works. Um, probably the most accessible is Imam al-Ghazali's book in the Ihya Ulum al-Din called Riyadatul Nafs wa Tahdibul Akhlaq on developing the character and disciplining the soul. In that volume, it's translated into English, he has a very thorough description of these aspects of character and how they're brought into balance. Yeah, it's very theoretical, but then he talks about the practical stuff afterwards. I wouldn't be surprised if it's been made into a PDF and is online. It's been, it was published in 1991, I believe. It was translated by Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad uh, many, many years ago. Yeah, he goes over this book. Yeah. yeah. He did that years ago. Right. Yeah. I have it in my computer. Okay. I can send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. How the balance of these four qualities, then it will give rise to a negative quality. Yeah. Or imbalance. 
a, it gives rise to a negative, but that negative can be a negative of excess, where they have too much of it, or they don't have enough. Neglect. Ifrat and tafriq. Can we form these characters by working on them, you know, like develop your character? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're lacking in it, the scholars say, as we say in English, fake it until you make it. That's, that's the idea. You fake it until you make it. And this is what the scholars call at-takhalluq. So you have khuluq, which is good character. But takhalluq is purposely trying to build that into yourself. And there's takhalluq bi-akhlaq al-mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam where you purposely try to inculcate his character. There's also التخلق بأسماء الله right, where you try to inculcate the character uh, as reflected in the meanings of Allah's names. Right? That, that doesn't apply to all of Allah's names. But for many of them, yes, there is an aspect of تخلق. Uh, for example, his name, Ar-Rahim, Right, you know what that name means. You see the reflections of that name in creation. And then there's the takhalluq, where you try to adopt some of the meanings or the aspects, the moral qualities that reflect the meaning of that name. Right? And the same for the other names. Right? So it's basically fake it until you make it. Right? Now, depending on the complexity of the person's situation, they may not be able to do it on their own. They may need a mentor, someone who can see what they can't necessarily see to point out what they're missing. But that's generally how you do it. And it's through purposeful effort over time. That's the only way. Mujahada. Okay. If there's no questions, we'll go into the book, inshallah. Uh, on page 45... He titles this the character of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now on page 45, he goes through this until page, the top of page 50. And then from page 50 to about the end of 52, he does a slight detour, or it seems like a detour, but it's not really, where he talks about some of the aspects of the physical descriptions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Where he kind of merges the khuluq and the khalq together. And we'll see how, why he does that. So he says, The Messenger of Allah وسلم, has said, I have been given nobility of character. And in a narration, I have been sent to perfect noble character. Some of the scholars have said, Know that the people of virtue and intelligence consider the Prophet's tremendous character as the greatest of all of his miracles. There is no doubt regarding this. May Allah bless him and grant him peace and abundance. Uh, why is it a miracle? It's a miracle because it is perfect balance in all situations, at all times. There is absolutely nothing in his character that went out of proper balance. Right? You know these seesaws they have at playgrounds? You know, kids, they sometimes get on the middle of the seesaw. 
They're not on either end. And they're trying to stand and keep it perfectly balanced. And they're wobbling, right? Until they get to a point where it stays still. While it's still, however, the seesaw is still externally. But the kid, in order to keep it balanced and still, has to tense up his muscles and keep you know, micro adjustments to keep it from going this way or that way. So imagine a person whose character is perfectly balanced at every moment, waking and sleeping and walking and talking and everything, and it never swerves. Like maybe you have good character, but if you only had three hours of sleep and it's a road trip and your kids are annoying, maybe you lose some of that, right? You have a moment. Now the moment doesn't define you as a person of bad character. You're just having a bad day. Right? You go back to your norm shortly after. But per, this is perfect character in every single moment. And this is why he says that some of the scholars say this is one of his, the greatest of all of his miracles. He says, the Prophet once said, My Lord offered to turn the whole valley of Mecca into gold for me. I said, No. No, my Lord, but I will eat one day and go hungry another day. The Prophet ﷺ may have said this three times or the like of it. And when I am hungry, I will plead to you and remember you. And when I eat, I will thank and praise you. So this hadith is recorded by Imam al-Tirmidhi uh, and others. And it teaches us an important lesson. Because everything about the life of the Prophet ﷺ was an embodiment of sabr and shukr. Always. And that's the same for every mu'min. Everything in life presents you with an opportunity for either sabr or shukr. You're having a good day, things are going well, alhamdulillah, no problems, shukr. Things not going so well, having a tough day, sabr. So it's always going to be one of these two. And usually it's both of them combined, right? Every single day. And this is why the Prophet says, How astounding is the affair of the believer. And all of his affairs are amazing. Because if he receives good, shakar, he shows gratitude, and it's good for him. And if something happens to him, a tribulation, sabara, he shows patience and it's better for him. So that's the believer. You're always between these two qualities. And in this hadith, we see that the Prophet ﷺ was given a choice by Allah Ta'ala to have a mountain turned to gold. Now I'll be honest with you, I never thought about this until now, but if somehow an offer was made to me that a mountain could be turned into gold, I would accept it. I, just, I, I could see myself saying that because I'm like, hmm, I could use that money, you know. How many good things could I do? You know, I will be set for life, you know. That offer was made to him. He didn't say yes and think to turn, use the money for the da'wah, for building, I don't know, madaris or doing, sending this one and that one out. No. He actually said no. And then he said why. He said, I will eat one day and go hungry another day. And when I'm hungry, I will plead to you and remember you. And when I eat, I will thank and praise you.
So he's choosing his lifestyle where there's a constant shukr and sabr, right? This is what we see. He says, it is related from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma who said, one day the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam and Jibreel alayhi salam were on Mount Safa. The Messenger of Allah said, O Jibreel, by the one who sent you with the truth, an evening has not gone by where the family of Muhammad have had an amount of flour or an amount of suwaiq. I believe the narration is sawiq. But it, I have to check the Arabic. Uh, it could be suwaiq or sawiq. Sawiq is the porridge. If it's suwaiq in the Arabic, it, it means literally a little amount of porridge. Right? You could not hear the words quicker than the Prophet uttering them when there was a clap of thunder from the sky, which alarmed the Prophet ﷺ. The Messenger of Allah asked, has Allah ordered for the day of standing to take place? This happened more than once, by the way. Where he would hear uh, thunder or see really dark clouds and he would hasten to salat because Allah did not reveal to him when Yawm Al-Qiyamah is going to happen. So he asked this, has Allah ordered for the day of standing to take place? And Jibreel answered, no, but he has ordered Israfil who has descended for you when he heard your words. So he's hearing the sound of the angel. Israfil came forward and said, Allah has heard what you have said. He has sent me to you with the keys to the treasures of the earth. He has ordered me to present to you the option that the mountains of Tihama will become emeralds, rubies, gold and silver, and will accompany you. If you choose, you can be Nabiyun Malak, a prophet, king, or if you choose, you can be a prophet, slave, or here it means Abdun uh, Rasul, right? A, a, a slave and a messenger. The Prophet said, but rather a prophet, slave, or we'd say Abdun Rasul, a servant, messenger. And he repeated it three times. Uh, this is in Tabarani and Al Bayhaqi in their collections. Uh, and there's other narrations which mention this option that was given to him. To be a Malak Nabi, a king and a prophet. Was there a king prophet before? Yes. Prophet Dawood alayhi salam. So they met. They had that. But he chose to be Abdun Rasul. So he chose this lifestyle. This is important for us to note because we see in the seerah and in the other in the hadith the the lack of material things in the life of the Prophet sallallahu but we understand that this was broadly a choice. This is why Imam Subki rahimahullah, one of the great Shafi'i Imams, he said it is haram for you to say that the Prophet ﷺ was faqir in the material sense. He is faqir in the spiritual sense. Faqirun ilallah. That's true. But he means the physical poverty, the material poverty. He says it's haram for you to say that because he was given the choice and he made the choice. And if he ever wanted it, it would have opened up for him. Right? He says it's related from Masruq 
who relates from Sayyida Aisha radiallahu anha who said, O Messenger of Allah, do you not ask Allah for food so that he will feed you? I would cry because of the condition that I would see the Prophet in due to hunger. Now we see two situations in the seerah. We see situations where everyone is lacking food. There's just material constraints. Then we see narrations where the Sahaba have orchards, they have farms, they have livestock, they have crops, right? So they do come into some material plenty. But we still see these hadith about fires not being lit in the house of the Prophet ﷺ for two consecutive nights. So this leads people to wonder, how could the Sahaba know that this is the condition in his household? And how could they know that and continue to grow their crops and sell them and not bring food over? So this is a question. And there's two basic answers. Uh, one answer says that this was true for the household of the Prophet ﷺ, and it was true for many of the households for a period of time in the Medinan period. That's a broad answer. The second answer is that this was not always disclosed to the Sahaba. He didn't talk about this. It would be seen sometimes, but it wasn't something talked about all the time because if he was mentioning this to the public, even to the elite of the Sahaba, it's inconceivable that they would not make sacrifices to bring food to him. Right? So that's the way we look at that. So would you say that we, we found out about it afterwards? Who's telling us? Live? Who's telling us? It's Aisha. Aisha. Yeah. Yeah, she's telling us. There are incident, instances in where it was somewhat public. We have the hadith of Abu Haytham ibn Tayyihad where the Prophet is walking at night and it was a very late night when people weren't normally out and he encounters Abu Bakr and he says what brings you out at night and he says to look at the face of the Messenger of Allah soon after that they encounter Umar walking at the same time of the night and he asks him, what brings you out at this hour of the night? And he says, Al-Jur, Ya Rasulullah, I'm hungry. <laughs> and so they, they go to the orchard of Abu Haytham ibn Tayyihan, who had an orchard of, of dates and whatnot. They go there and they encounter his wife. And the wife says that he is out tending to some of the crops <laughs> very late at night. Most likely he was getting water because that's when they would fetch the water when it was not hot. They would bring that water to irrigate the orchards. And so they sat down until eventually Abu Haytham ibn Tayyihan comes and he cuts this large stalk of dates and brings fresh water, cold water, and then they're eating from it, all of them together. And then the Prophet wasallam says, these are among the blessings you'll be asked about on the Day of Judgment. Right? فَلَتُسْأَلُونَ يَوْمَ إِذِنْ عَنِ النَّعِيمِ Right, so that was that was an example of some hunger that was public. You know, we also have the hadith where he was seen tying the, the two two stones. Right, but we see in that hadith that other Sahaba were doing the same thing. 
Other Sahaba were tying two stones, and he lifted his shirt and showed them it was two, so even more than them. And the reason for the stones, uh, we covered this in the Shema'il class, there was the belief back then that the coolness of the stone, when pressed against the side of the stomach near the liver and tied around it, the coolness of the stone would help cool the liver, which actually helps uh, control the feeling of hunger. It makes the pain of hunger go away. Because the hunger pain is associated with the liver. So if you cool the liver, the, the heat from the hunger dissipates somewhat. So that was the reason for it. He says, uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, O Aisha, by the one who holds my soul in his hand, were I to ask my Lord to turn the mountains of the world into gold to accompany me, he would have moved them wherever I want in the world. However, I have chosen hunger in the world over being filled and have chosen the poverty of the world over its wealth and have chosen its sadness over its joy. O Aisha, the world is not suited for Muhammad or the family of Muhammad. O Aisha, Allah is not pleased for me except that I should bear this responsibility. So he has said, Therefore endure patiently as did the messengers of firm resolve. I swear by Allah, I have no choice but obedience and I swear by Allah that I, I will be patient with all my effort and there is no strength but Allah. Uh, now he, here what he's doing, he's citing from Imam al-Ghazali himself who's citing these hadith. It continues, uh, from the hadith of Abu Nu'aym, uh, the Holy Spirit blew into my soul. I, I would translate that differently. You know, the, the wording in Arabic is alqa fi raw'i. Alqa fi raw'i means I was inspired by the angel Jibreel. Love who you want, for you will leave them. And live how you want, for you will die. And do as you want, for you will be rewarded for it, right? So this, this lifestyle of the Prophet ﷺ is a part of his character, and we see that he chose this, and is a reflection of his broad vision. And what I mean by broad vision is that he's not just seeing the world. He's seeing the barzakh, he's seeing the hereafter, he's seeing the ultimate destiny of everything. So with someone possessing that degree of certainty, that degree of knowledge makes choices based on that firm knowledge, right? If you know, for example, that lying ahead 100 miles away is a castle, this, that, the other, food, provisions, like everything's perfect, but you have to get there would you willingly stop at rest stops and relax for weeks on end and just eat the chips in the gas station? Or would you say, no, no, just keep going, keep going, because I know that's where the ultimate destination is and what's ahead, so I make my choices now based on what I know is ahead. Right, that's what you're seeing here. Imam al-Ghazali, he quotes him, uh, may Allah have mercy upon him, has said regarding this hadith, there is no harm against the one who is unveiled with the eye of certainty. Ah, see? There's no harm 
against the one who was unveiled with the eye of certainty. The Prophet ﷺ was in the world like a traveler upon the path. He never placed a brick upon a brick or a plank of wood upon a plank. He never saved a dinar or a dirham, nor took a beloved or a friend. Yes, the Prophet ﷺ did say, if I was to take a khalil, an intimate friend, I would have taken Abu Bakr as a khalil, but your companion is the friend of the merciful Ar-Rahman. So this is different from Siddiq, right? Your friend, right? But khalil is a higher level, right? He says not even Abu Bakr, it is Ar-Rahman. He further says, therefore the most knowledgeable of scholars, the wisest of sages are those for whom the life after death is revealed its wonders and signs which cannot be imagined or pictured. If a person was to have no other concern or pressure except the danger of that time and asked to when the veil will be lifted and what will be revealed to him once the covering is removed, would it be a definite, would it be a definite wretchedness or eternal happiness? It would be enough to spend one's whole life upon. How astonishing is this heedlessness of ours when the most difficult obstacles are right before us? What is more astonishing than this is our joy over our wealth, family, means, and our world, but also our physique, our hearing, and our sight, when we all know that we are certainly to leave it all behind. And uh, time is it? I think we'll stop here, inshallah. So we have an understanding of the roots of character, the, the Islamic model of ethics. We looked at some examples here. Uh, the next section after the brief Shema'il goes into the aspects of character vis-a-vis other people and in interactions, right? This is the personal character of the Prophet This is not describing the character of him in relation to other people in interacting with them. That's going to come next, inshallah. But before we leave, I do want to give you a little bit of a clue. If you look at page 40, so we just finished page, or almost all of 48. If you go to page 50, you see that the author mentions this section, the description of the Prophet and then the physical description. Right, that's one section. And he gives bullet points. Each bullet point is looking at a very specific phrase in the hadith of the hilya, the hadith which describes the physical features of the Prophet So he goes through these bullet points, and then right after that he goes right back into character. What's going on there? He doesn't say it here, but he says it later on in the book that the physical features in the Shema'il reveal aspects of the character. So the, the khalq reflects the khuluq. His physical features, the meanings behind them, reflect the character. And his character is reflected in the perfection of his physical features. Does that make sense? What's the dua when you look in the mirror? Allahumma kama hasanta khalqi fa hasan khuluqi. So he's looking at how uh, 
these qualities in the bullet points are physical descriptions, but within them are meanings that point to character as well. Now we'll explore that next class, inshallah. But I'll give you one example. The last one, I just looked at it. Now it says, Rajul al-Sha'ar. There was a slight wave in the hair of the Prophet ﷺ. It was not curly or lank. So that hadith describes his hair as being uh, neither ja'ad nor qatat. So ja'ad is when it is very, uh, what's the word we would use? Uh, it's, it's thick, right? Or very, very curly. Qatat is when it is super straight. Super straight. His hair was slightly wavy. It was in between this and in between that. Right? So there's two things here. Number one, he is accessible insofar as he has an appearance that people who have very straight hair can relate to and people who have very curly hair can relate to. If you have curly hair, well, his is slightly curly. But it's only slightly so, it's somewhat straight too. So if you have straight hair, you can relate to it as well, somewhat. But he's always in the balance, in between both of these things. And obviously having straight hair or curly hair is not a character, it's not a character uh, virtue or flaw, right? It's just the way Allah created you. But the outer physical features point to aspects of the character in being balanced in all things. Neither this nor that. In between, perfectly balanced. That's one example. And you see in the other physical features how each of them reflects an aspect of the khuluq. So each aspect of the khalq reflects aspects of the khuluq, the internal character. Right? And this maybe we'll go into a little bit on the science of physiognomy. <laughs> physiognomy is the science of determining a person's character from their physical features. And this is a legitimate science. Physiognomy. 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 Uh, I'll, maybe I'll bring some material for this. Physiognomy is a science. It's not a pseudoscience. It is, it is a science existing among the ancient Greeks, traditional Chinese, the, the, the Indians, uh, the Arabs, the Europeans, everybody. They had this notion that a person's physical features do give clues about their character. Like if you imagine in your mind, what does a shifty, suspicious person look like <laughs> in their face? What does a greedy, conniving, slimy kind of person look like in their face? Think about that. And what is it about the face that gives that away? <laughs> the eyes, the nose, the brow, everything. So this is a science and it's empirical because they're, you know, they're looking at how physical features tend to reflect certain aspects of character. Physiognomy is real. And in Arabic, this science is called ilmul firasa. Ilmul firasa. And in the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he says, "Ittaqu firasa al-mu'min fa'innahu yanzuru bi nuri Allah." Beware of the firasa of the believer, 
for it for he looks with the light of Allah. That firasa is not just physiognomy, by the way. That firasa is an internal, uh, how you could say, clarity, right? It's a it's a basira. It's an insight that Allah gives to the person where they can see certain things. But ilm al-firasa as a science is a physical science that maps physical features onto character, just looking at broad patterns, right? And yeah, we'll save this for the next class, inshallah. But it's really good because when you learn it, you see it's not just about learning about shifting and conniving people, right? I mean, you pay attention to patterns, but from physiognomy, when you look at the science of physiognomy and then apply it to the shema'il, and you look at each of those descriptions, what you see is beauty, symmetry, and all of those things reflected in character. So this the, the confluence of the physical and the uh, moral, right? The character and the creation. The physical and the character. Khalq and khuluq. They go together. Zahir and batin. The inward, the outward. They reflect perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, the scholars say that when you look at the narrations that mention the beauty and handsomeness of Prophet Yusuf alayhi salam, uh, this is the question they ask. Okay, we look in Surah Yusuf and we see that when Zulaikha brought Yusuf out in that group of women, as she had presented them all with the fruits and the knives, they're so shocked by his handsomeness that they cut their fingers with the knives. The question is this. Well, we know that the Prophet ﷺ is even more handsome than Yusuf. So why didn't that happen to people in his time? Well, there's that, but people did see him, and it never happened. So, coincidentally, Sayyida Aisha radiallahu anha made some poetry about this. She said, had the women of Zulaikha saw the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu they wouldn't have cut their fingers. They would have stabbed their hearts. <laughs> but the answer uh, why that didn't happen with him is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also clothed him with jalal. So you have jamal, beauty, and you have jalal, majesty. Something can be very beautiful, but it may not have that majesty, right? So he has jamal, fawqa jamali Sayyidina Yusuf, even more. But it's also cloaked in jalal, awe. Right? This is why you have in the hadith of the Shema'il. Man ra'ahu badihatan habahu. Whoever would see him by chance, 
they just, you know, they bump into him, they see him for the first time. Habahu, they would be awestruck. But when they would interact with him, they would grow deeply love him. But he's always cloaked in in jalal. So that beauty, that handsomeness is cloaked in majesty. And that's why people weren't doing that. Because when the two mix, you're more controlled. When it's just beauty, it's just all, you know, anything can happen. Not suppressing, it's just he's cloaked in jamal. So they say that the Prophet ﷺ is the perfect embodiment of jalal and jamal together in perfect harmony. And when you take jalal and jamal in perfect harmony together, you get kamal, right? You get completion. And because of that jalal, these kinds of things didn't happen. People were just awestruck. And that 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 changes the behavior, that changes the interactions. It gives it, uh, it makes it more, uh, how can we say it? They become more measured in that way. Yeah.